Welcome to the Next Level Brands Podcast, where we share stories about the food and CPG world with experts in the trenches about how to build a successful brand today. Now, your host, G. Stephen Clear. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us here on the Next Level Brands Podcast. We're brought to you today by Kitchen to Shelf, the educational arm of Next Level Brands and providers of online and in-person courses and workshops for CPG entrepreneurs at any stage of growth. If you're selling on a regional basis at farmer's markets or just online, and you want to expand your retail distribution, then you should look into the courses and webinars from Kitchen to Shelf. Want to learn more about distributors, co-packers, trade funding? Kitchen to Shelf can help you learn what you need to know to grow. More details at kitchentoshelf.com. That's kitchen, the number two, shelf.com. Well, I'm Steve Clear, and welcome to the show, everybody. This is a special one we get to do a deep dive into healthy snacking. And we all know that snacking is one of the things that got a stratospheric boost from the pandemic. And now it's become an ingrained consumer habit. My guest today is Matt Weiss, the founder and CEO of Rind Snacks. After a nearly two-decade career in finance, Matt launched Rind in 2017 in a return to his family's health food roots. Matt's passion for whole food snacking was inspired by lessons he learned from his great-grandmother, Helen Seitner, a health food pioneer who operated a well-known natural food store in Michigan in the 1920s. Rind is a better-for-you snack brand focused on the whole fruit nutrition, with a product line powered by the peel. The company's craveable dried fruit snacks maximize nutrition while minimizing waste. Rind sits right at the intersection of two of the most powerful trends in CPG today, functional nutrition and sustainable snacking. And through Rind, Matt continues his great-grandmother's legacy of sustainable snacking with a modern twist, by encouraging his consumers to keep it real and eat the peel. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thanks, Steve. It is a pleasure to be here. Really excited to chat with you today. You know, um, so most, I, I'm sure there's a whole number of folks out there who know about Rind, but then there's a group I'm sure who don't. Rind kind of gives it away. Can you tell us a little bit about how that came about, what it is? Yep. <clears throat> no, I'd love to. I, one of the things I love about uh, our brand and the business we're building is that it can really be distilled down to a very simple, intuitive value proposition, which is, you know, the power is in the peel. Uh, the greatest concentration of fiber, vitamin C nutrition is in the one part of the fruit that's most commonly discarded. And so <clears throat> it's not the type of snack that requires a tremendous amount of education. We're not using esoteric ingredients. We're not adding, you know, newfangled processes to it. This is nature's candy unprocessed. We keep the rind on for all that nutritional powerhouse it affords. And um, we turn them into snackable slices of uh, delicious, tangy, bittersweet, uh, you know, dried fruit. Right, exactly. And and in snackable form and great combinations of which we'll get into in a little bit of the line, because that's really exciting. Um, in just in the interest of full transparency, Matt and I are having a very open conversation. Some of you may know that I also work as a fractional VP of marketing for another dried fruit company. Mm -hmm. I like to think that we are competitive, but we are not competitors. We're both we're working to bring you better snacking, cutting waste and promoting sustainability. And we like each other's products and their differences. So you guys out there should be eating them both, but wanted to get that out on the table because we're gonna deep dive this a little bit. So when we talk about, we talk about in the Rhine, this is true from, I mean, a, a lot of vegetables, the same thing. It's what in the heck are you doing peeling it to make it, I don't know, look better or be juicy or whatever, when nutrient value and everything else is a lot of it, right? It just in the, right. in the rind. 
That's exactly right. I mean, all the goodness is concentrated at the edge, the perimeter of whether it's fruit, whether it's root vegetables, even uh, you know nuts and some legumes. Uh, the mineral content is higher, and there's a reason, a scientific reason why that's the case, and it's because that the exterior of the fruit in this case acts as the barrier. Uh, against all environmental stress while it's growing and protecting the sweet flesh of the fruit. And so as a result, all of those powerful, you know, polyphenols and antioxidants are concentrated at the exterior, what I call antioxidant armor, uh, protecting right. the fruit. And that's, that's where you get all the benefits. That's where you get all the fiber, that's where you get all the vitamins. And it is ridiculous, as you point out, that that be discarded to make things look more homogenous or aesthetically pleasing for kids or pumped full of sugar and sulfur dioxide. It's, it's ludicrous. This is the most single ingredient. Uh, this should be the most single ingredient snack category there is. Right. Because it's, it's all there. No reason to get into exactly. it. No reason to get rid of it. Um, and for some of us who like a little bit more sour, probably not the proper word, but, you know, with a little bit more tang to it, sometimes yeah. that's great because that's what's that's what you're you're doing. You're you're you know, you're you're adding a little bit of that or you have a little bit of that in it, as well as the sweet of the, you know, of the pulp. Um, so we'll get back into flavors and fruit and sustainability for a minute. But I want to dive uh, a little bit back into your journey. So finance, whether you didn't start out to be a food entrepreneur, how, how did you get here? Yeah. So as you mentioned, it's been about a two decade career in finance, but I guess I've always been restless in terms of my personality. I've always been entrepreneurial. I can't sit still. Um, I always have been juggling, you know, many projects uh, before the term side hustle, I guess, became a badge of honor. Um, I was tinkering with, you know, a million different things and pushing myself to, sort of limits where, um, you know, I had a full-time job, but I was also engrossing myself into a new category or learning something new or trying to start, uh, whether it was a business or a grassroots effort. We, you know, that's what I love to do. I drew energy from it and still do. And so as part of my experience covering public companies for this big investment firms, mutual fund, uh, the last 10 years of which I'd been spending covering um, the food and beverage space. So I would travel to conferences and you know trade shows and study up on the secular trends going on in the um, in the food industry, and what I just became totally immersed in health and wellness. Fell in love with the individuals I was meeting, the brands, the creativity, the energy. It's hard not to walk. An Expo West, and right. it's just like full of enthusiasm for you know future snack, uh, future snacks coming down the pike. I, I look forward to the day when that energy on the trade show floor is here again. Um, but that yes. was how I got sort of into the space through my investor uh, experience. And when you get bit by the bug, it's hard to go back to your desk, build models and focus on other entrepreneurs' dreams and not have your mind wander to, hey, I've got some ideas of my own. I would love to um, build something here. So let's, let's be upfront about this. So a background in finance, obviously some education, and then you cover the sector from an investment standpoint and you still decide to go into it? <laughs> wow, <laughs> that's, that's dedication. <laughs> you know? Fair enough. Yes, you know, what I love is that I knew what I was getting into. And I think there's so many 
entrepreneurs these days that see the glamorous side of the business. They see the, you know, beautiful packaging or a buzzy Instagram page. Um, you know, what they're not seeing is the day-to-day grind, the rind and grind. And I was prepared for, you know, rolling up my sleeves, checking my ego at the door, knowing what I didn't know and being ready to learn. Um, but what was missing from my day-to-day work as an investor was this practical experience of building a business, building a brand. Right. And it's ironic because I'm sitting there studying businesses, right. And advising entrepreneur, you know, executives on, well, you know, if you took your business in this direction with this product innovation, your profit margins would be X. And it's, I have no business doing that until you are uh, in the trenches yourself. And I learned, I've learned by doing, um, and I love that. You gotta, you gotta embrace the messiness. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The messy middle. Um, so, okay. Why fruit and why fruit in this format? Yeah. So a lot of this then goes back to some of the inspiration I had as a kid uh, from my great grandmother, who was a larger than life force in our in our family. She by that time was living in Phoenix, Arizona. So I we would go visit her and she was at this point into her late 90s. She was just a firecracker and she left such an impression on me. She would do sit ups on a slant board. She called it a slant board never walked with a cane. This was, again, late into her 90s. And she had a glowing aura about her in, in both figurative and literal sense. She had a something called um, beta carotemia, which is an excess of beta carotene in the bloodstream because of all the carrot juice that she consumed. She drank. <laughs> she was the, yeah, she drank carrot yeah. juice to excess. So she was like the real deal of health and wellness well before it was cool. And part of her stories that had me, you know, hooked as a kid, again, I was eight, 10 years old at the time, were around the health food store that she owned and operated in Flint, Michigan uh, in the 1920s. And that was, those were the stories I, you know, that stuck with me, both as her role as a entrepreneur and a female entrepreneur at that, at a time when, you know, that was not uh, a path for many. And then two, pioneering this and preaching this whole fruit, whole veg uh, focus. She had standards in her store where she would not carry refined flowers. And at the time, you know, white bread and wonder bread, those were kind of the emerging luxuries of the middle class. And that was verboten for her. It had to be, you know, wheat germ, wheat bran, you know, totally unprocessed because that was where the most nutrition was. And I just love that. It stuck with me. It's always been in the back of my head. my so I was raised on a farm in upstate New York, my grandmother's farm, and my grandmother, uh, of course, same thing, baked. You didn't buy bread in the store like the the bread truck would go by the house, and she'd go, "These silly people." Um, <laughs> we also composted, which you know, it's like when composting became popular again. I was going like, "No, oh, hey, I, I I know that you know," but it was it was there was the two aspects. One was they knew it tasted better. There was no question about what is this thing that you bought at the store. It's nothing like what it's supposed to be. And then secondly, they were aware, perhaps not as much as we were, I don't think, but of the nutritional difference that clearly there was better stuff in there. And then last but not least is they didn't waste anything. Yes. I mean, it just didn't, you know, it was like, I'm sorry, there's no part of the cow from our cousin's farm that we would get that we weren't using. Not at all. Yeah. A hundred percent. And I think that's really the third leg of the stool, which was 
informed, I imagine, by the time in which they were uh, they were living, where stretching your food budget by using every part of the animal or the fruit or the vegetable um, was just common sense, right? right. And not right. only was it providing better nutrition or maximizing the nutrition, but it was also helping you maximize your food budget. Um, so it, what I love about this product and this snack is it kind of harkens back to a time when snacking was as authentic as it should be, right? It, we talk about keeping it real as kind of a North Star for the business. It's our motto, keep it real, eat the peel. But there's an authenticity to what Mother Nature produces and in the packaging which Mother Nature <laughs> produces it, that uh, there's a reason why it's survived for millennia and it's because that's the good stuff and that is how fruit is supposed to be consumed. And so somewhere along the way, Steve, it's gotten, this category has become usurped by candy makers, has been pumped full of oh, yes. sugar and sulfur dioxide, the most common preservative in dried fruit to make it plumper, brighter, glow neon, and all the trends that we know and, and that you, you know, that you study and speak of with your clients are the opposite, right? It's right. clean label, it's back to its roots, and that's what Rind is all about. Um, so did you have an aha moment at Expo, walk in the floor, or, or again, you know, like dried fruit is, uh, has been a fairly staid category, right? Um, and, you know, but, and, and some people even are like, oh, well, you know, I don't want to, you know, have it because it's full of sugar. Well, yeah, some of them are, but, yeah, um, yeah. but why fruit? Yes, good question. There really, it wasn't that there was an epiphany. There was an experience I had, it was actually outside of an expo where I had spent the weekend in um, Southern California for the expo show. And on the weekend, it was probably Saturday, I had a chance to walk the farmer's market, which I love to do. Who doesn't like a good farmer's market? And this was in, this was in Santa Monica. And, and coming from the East Coast, based out of New York, it is so clear to me why all the best produce doesn't leave California. It's this just like Santa Monica farmer's market. Yeah. <laughs> it was just eye opening to me that like, Oh, are you guys hoarding this stuff? Like I have never heard of a pomelo and I've never seen these different varieties. And, and on that, you know, walk through the market, there were some um, farmers who had dried persimmon. And again, first time having a persimmon, but in California, it's, it's much better known. And it was a fruit tasting food experience I had never had. And not only did it look beautiful, um, but it tasted like a fruit I'd just never experienced before. And I came back really pumped up. And the whole idea I had and I brought back to my wife to, to you know, level set it and check it was, <laughs> you know, persimmon chips. I was going to do a persimmon fruit chip business. And I was that blown away by this one experience. And we got to talking and she talked me down and I started to recognize how niche and narrow that was, but that started the process where it was, how come when I go to the supermarket, you can't find dried persimmon, certainly not readily. Right. And, um, and therefore, why can't you find some other unique exotic fruits? Why is it all raisins and prunes and apricots? And by the way, why do those glow when the fruit I saw at the farmer's market was real and natural? Yep. And why is it being stripped of this most nutritious layer? It started to come together, but it took a couple of weeks. And uh, did, did you start um, 
like drying stuff at home, dehydrating? Did you, is that how you, okay. okay. So tell us about the process. Uh, if, if you saw, if, if anyone had a, a window into my Amazon purchases in 2017, um, they would be pretty bizarre and eccentric. It was like mandolins for slicing, uh, you know, yeah. fruits and vegetables and Excalibur, you know, food dehydrator, you know, food grade gloves. I mean, it was some out there stuff versus what, you know, I probably had been buying up to then, but I had to just try these things out. So I started dehydrating fruits that I loved that I hadn't found on shelf anywhere else. So watermelon, I, I immediately went to melons. Oh, wow. And, yeah. you know, melons are just <laughs> such a high moisture content fruit that it was a very tricky one to start with because your yield is so low. It takes out a lot of watermelons and a lot of honeydew to yep. come out with snacks. But, and you have to dehydrate it for a long period of time. But that's back to the messiness. I had to learn that. And you really can't do that with a home dehydrator to any great degree. But I ended up blowing the power to my small apartment building. That uh, was like a co-op in Manhattan and uh, got a serious uh, dress down from the board, but um, made some awesome tasty snacks in the process. And so I was kind of on my way, but I started tinkering at home, but really to realize if this had any commercial scale potential that I had to obviously work with co-packers and aggregators and, and find raw material that was abundant yep. and high quality and uh, grown by some terrific partners. And I started to put the pieces of that puzzle together um, in earnest in 2017, 2018. So you... With the, with the with the knowledge, the business knowledge background, uh, of course, and and by the way, you can be a guest on another show we're going to do about access to capital um, because it's so critical. Is um, you knew before putting the foot in the water, the toe in the water, rather that that to build this type of business requires capital. Yeah. How did you approach that? Yeah. You know, I, I credit my wife on this one. She has always known me to be a very um, a creative thinker, and uh, she might use the word distracted, <laughs> but I'm always sort of thinking of ideas and companies and businesses that I'd like to start. And we together, we got married, you know, sort of made a pact that I would be putting aside some investment, some discretionary funds for an eventual idea where I'd want to go all in on. Right. And, you know, I, it wouldn't therefore be so we'd be so exposed and like we'd start feeding this and not have any plan or sense of, of budget. Um, this was, you know, I was putting away some funds to bootstrap this. And I had also spent two decades in finance that had allowed me to, you know, build up my own fund to bet on myself. Right. And right. I like it. You know, it had a cap, which I blew through as these things go, but <laughs> We started out knowing effectively what we were getting into and therefore not requiring external capital. And remember, I was doing this on the side. So I was still able to, on nights and weekends, uh, you know, creatively build the business, identify partners, again, put the puzzle pieces together while still being gainfully employed. And it wasn't until my world converged and Ryan started taking over my life that I had to sort of make a real decision and, and you know, figure this out once and for all. So, so beyond family and friends, um, where did you start interacting with the public? Did you start 
farmers markets? Did you do online? How, how'd you grow that? Yeah. Uh, online was, was the easiest and fastest route and gave us access to the biggest, you know, the biggest marketplace. So we started with Amazon. Um, we, what we did was it's funny. I'm like the, the following year's winter fancy food show. Uh, I was in San Francisco and when my meetings for work had wrapped up, I had rented a car and I drove up to meet a co-packer north of the city that I had been in conversation with. Um, I had had the fruit that I was purchasing from a separate source be trucked up and that this would all happen in like the two days that I was in town for the show. And I got to the co-packer and it was the most amazing, exhilarating experience that all the groundwork that I had laid up to this moment and seeing, you know, by by then the packaging that I'd been working on had arrived to the co-packer and I was there on the line with the team that was hand packing these and there, and then thermal sealing it. And I was able to hold the very first package of our orchard blend that came off the line. And it was the beginning of the beginning. It was so exhilarating to think that you can take an idea that's in your head and have a finished product and then figure out, I got to go sell this. And right. so, you know, <laughs> that's the next issue. Yeah. Yeah. That's the next issue. Detail. Exactly. So I had a duffel bag full of probably six cases of product that I went back to SFO flew to New York with, and then literally started walking around my neighborhood in New York city to some amazing, you know, we have Zay bars here and we have sure. Cinderella and like the food retail landscape in the city is second to none. I like to think. And I just, Again, by day I was working and then on the weekends I was hustling and trying to break into every little sandwich shop, coffee shop, independent market, just to figure this out, get some product market fit and feedback. At the same time, I launched this on Amazon with a third party that very quickly onboarded me and we were off to the races. Um, one of the great things about Amazon, besides the fact that the barrier to entry is, is fairly low, um, is you can get such great analytics from Amazon and really, you know, see who is buying the product, who's making that stretch to, to, yeah. you know, to, to get there. And, um, you know, sometimes I, I've talked to people that, you know, have very, very clear consumer personas. And then all of a sudden the Amazon stuff comes back and it's like, well, wait a minute, Karen with the 2.5 kids uh, yeah. who goes to soccer practice is really not, uh, it's really people over 65 years old and, you know, <laughs> Um, you know, so yeah. it, it, it's interesting that that gives you, it, 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 it can give a different perspective. It also gives a lot of emerging brands a space to go. And what I love is experimenting. So yes. it's the, okay, we're going to launch, we're going to, you know, we're going to, you think 10% price decrease is going to make a difference. Let's yeah. do a 10% price decrease and talk to me in a week. And guess what? Didn't make any difference at all. So, yeah. you know, let's just, you know, move on with that. It's, it's, it's an amazing, um, incubator for experimentation and you're figuring out how to set pricing, how to promote, and probably good to get a lot of that, you know, even though it's a discrete different channel from retail, probably good to get a real feel for, you know, who become the lovers and the super fans and who, and and when you do get negative feedback, which you invariably will, that you heed it, that you listen to it, that you understand your product and accept that your product may not be for everyone. 
and that's okay. And you know, that was a really, you know, some people would say, well, launching on Amazon is super high risk. You, you know, you're showing, you're showing the world your product and your baby. But it's like actually, I think going on Amazon is lower risk because it's the first step toward getting feedback on your product. Yeah, and you don't have to do a guaranteed sale. You don't exactly. have to pay a slotting fee, and you exactly. don't have to, you know. But it's it's funny because you will see things with there's, uh, you know, core users, whatever, and you know, and um, you go, what are these people doing with this? They're buying <laughs> a lot of this stuff. This is like, wow, yes. I'm not sure. You know, maybe they're giving it out to kids in the neighborhood or something or whatever. Um, it was. I was going to say, it was a real rush and still is, but less so when I see, you know, we obviously are doing a, a very fast growing business online, both our own website, ryansnacks.com and, and Amazon. But, you know, the first few orders on Amazon were family members and friends, obviously, as these things get going. And then to see orders coming in, you're like, you know, I don't think I know anybody in Kalamazoo. And <laughs> this is really exciting. And you know, who's in Wisconsin, mom? Like, you know, do you, do we have cousins there? And, you know, all of a sudden, you know, this person ordered like three bags and now they're going back and it's their fourth order in a month and they really yeah, love this plan. Yeah. It's like, wow. Okay. This is resonating. It works. Um, speaking of, of Amazon and, and, and the e-commerce, uh, how about the pandemic? What effect did the pandemic have from either your supply side or from the consumer yeah. facing side? Yeah. I'll start with the supply side first. Um, we were very fortunate that uh, our supply chain of both on the, you know, on the farming side and on the, so the farming, drying, and co-packing side in the state of California were all deemed sort of essential uh, industry um, supporting agriculture and therefore remained open, although with much more limited crews to make sure their, their employees and their teams were safe but it allowed us to continue to fulfill purchase orders that were coming in and frankly started to really ramp up because we had a shelf stable product that was being you know when 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 shelves were being cleared out of vitamin c supplements and toilet paper and paper towels they were also looking for pantry staples to tide them over for how long this quarantine was going to last so at the same time, we were seeing huge spikes in our online businesses. And I'll tell you on the demand side, how we leaned into that. We were also just launching into our first key accounts, which was Whole Foods, Wegmans, and the Fresh Market. This oh. was, I kid you not, Steve, it was last week of February, first week of March. We were going to go right into Expo West with this real exciting story and launching in the Mid-Atlantic and Northeast and... Uh, and like everybody, you had to, you know, pull out a playbook you didn't expect. But yeah, yeah, amazing. Yeah, uh, it's been it, it's it's been an incredible change, sea change, obviously from the e-commerce side for most folks, and um, and, and 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 still a lot of questions, obviously, you know, going forward at this yeah. point. Um, yeah. But if you're Amazon, you know, you were you know in the right place at the right time. You were at yeah. you know whatever and. Um, most people that were in consumable goods, but shelf stable or at least long, um, you know, usage life um, yes. had huge spikes in, yes. you know, going forward. And then people you were hoping, okay, they're going to buy these, they're going to put them away. But the truth of the matter is now the kids are home, yeah. uh, homeschooling, right? They want something to eat. Well, I don't want to give them chocolate bars, so I'm going to give them some dried yeah. fruit snacks. You know, it, it no doubt accelerated and pulled forward a lot of trial, which 
we benefited from, especially at a time when that traditional channel of demos and sampling was closed to us. Oh, yes. So we were, you know, we, we, we were very fortunate. And um, the other benefit I think we have going for us is at the time, we were just a two-person team. We still are. We're about to be a three-person team. But um, super <laughs> lean and mean, and therefore we didn't have any of the you know, fixed overhead of say a big field sales team or exposure to channels that just completely dried up, you know, very sadly, whether it was food service or travel retail or, um, you know, college campuses or corporate offices, you you name it, you know, we feel for those snack brands that had a lot of their business in those channels, that was probably boom times up to the pandemic. And then you get hit at a left field with this. So instead we had the flexibility to see where, new channels were emerging and new omni-channel plays, for example, grocery subscription boxes, uh, which has been just an unbelievable growth driver and a market and awareness builder for the Rind brand. And and we've embraced those. Right. And that's, yeah, it's very, um, you know, food service, um, the food service play, and obviously, you know, part of it will come back, but so much of it is just like gone. I mean, it's, it's, you know, we have friends who, own restaurants and it hasn't been pretty. I'll tell you, just, just amazing. And they'll be okay. But yeah. a lot of people are not. Um, I want to, and, and by the way, it's rhinesnacks.com folks, not just rhine.com. So rhinesnacks.com to go find more information, find where you can buy it. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit, uh, Matt, about this idea of sustainability and cutting waste and whatever. Now, yeah. you know, both the company I work with, your company, we're, we're involved in this. It's a touchy subject a little bit, though, with people, because um, I I think it's very hard for people to imagine how much perfectly good food um, is just wasted in in this country where, you know, literally tons of fruit does not get dried. It gets dumped. It gets buried. Yes. And, you know, and it's not all ugly fruit. It's not all bad. Like, oh, well, that I couldn't sell that peach in the store because, oh, yeah, yeah okay. But but you can dry it and it, yeah. you're not even going to notice that, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I, I've seen stats as high as, you know, one out of every two apples in a grocery store is effectively becomes food waste. Because food waste. Wow. Um, I, it, this is a real, you know, it's a real, real challenge and, and problem and why I love seeing the ingenuity and creativity driving a lot of the upcycling movement. And while Rind isn't exactly a true upcycling play because we're not taking the discarded peels and reattaching them like Frankenstein right, to right. their, you know, their, their original owner, um, we are maintaining and, and uh, retaining the entire piece of the fruit or part of the fruit. And that's part of our spec when we work with our, uh, you know, our drying partners, where most other brands would probably in their spec have that be stripped away, right? right. And turned into an apple ring that doesn't have any of the, of the peel intact. So what, what is important to us is that by using the whole fruit, we are keeping in the food system this very nutritious layer of perfectly edible, uh, you know, uh, bright, tangy uh, fruit that otherwise represents tremendous unnecessary waste. And we have actually run the numbers. And last year alone, we estimate we diverted about 100,000 pounds of edible peels from being wasted. And that was in our you know, first real year. We, you know, we hope that's only going to grow, we expect that's only going to grow. And um, like you said earlier in the, in, in the show, 
the peel is not just where nutrition resides. It's what gives fruit and baked goods oftentimes their, their zip and their tang and their texture. And we're all cooking at home more now in the, in the pandemic. And one of the things we use to elevate a dish at home, since we're not going out to restaurants, is lemon zest and orange zest. And that is, you know, that's essentially what we're doing, but taking it to the next level and making the whole thing a snackable slice and putting it as a garnish at the end of your craft cocktail, because that's, you know, we think that's where the consumer is going. Um, so, man, I, I, we've got sustainability, we've got cut and waste, all those good things. Um, let's talk about sugars for a minute. <laughs> uh, okay. So, and, uh, and, and to be fair to the folks at Ocean Spray and whatever else, mm -hmm. um, with tart cherries and with cranberries in the norm, <laughs> they are not consumable in their natural state just because they're too sour. Now, there are some people that you are, they are out there. You can go on Amazon and find them, but yeah. um, eating them, not so much. Um, and most of the stuff out there, your trail mixes, bars or whatever that use either cranberries or tart cherries have to have sugar or some other sweetener in them in order to make them palatable. Yeah. We don't have to do that. No. So there's a nat natural sweetness, even in the tartest of, right, that occurs. Um, but this idea now of all of a sudden, well, two things. One is people are more aware of no sugar added because a lot yes. of people think that there are, and there are dried fruits that are full of sugar. Yes, there oh, are. Yeah. But there are also ones that have no sugar added whatsoever. Yes. And it doesn't mean it's going to be sour or whatever, but also the natural occurring sugar in fruits is not handled by the body in the same way that high fructose corn syrup or, you know, refined sugar is, right? So there's also a really healthy stand here beyond just the, yeah, we're, we're, we're eating the peel. Yeah. I love, I love this topic. You know, we get it a lot while we're participating in the broader macro trend of healthy, clean label snacking. We are we have a headwind in terms of a backlash against sugar, you know, that's driving, you know, keto and, and smart sweets and others. Right. What I would say what I would say is the enemy shouldn't be sugar. It should be added sugar. Right. right. So not all sugars are created equal, but a product like dried fruit where you are removing the moisture, concentrating the natural fruit sugars, balancing that with the high fiber benefits from the rind. So the body absorbs those natural sugars more slowly. Um, those are helpful, right? When you, right. the problem becomes when you, those provide clean, gr real energy and they're longer lasting because of the fiber component. When you're adding additional sugar to mango, which already tastes like candy when dehydrated, that's when it starts to get absurd and is, is basically appealing to the most basic of taste buds that are, have been weaned on nothing but, you know, but candy. Right, and so right. what I am encouraged by, curious your opinion, is I am sensing the more I've been building in the industry that taste buds are slowly changing and they are pursuing more adventurous, less sweet flavor profiles that are boundary pushing in a way, whether they're bittersweet, sour, there's much more acceptance of, like you said, a tart Mount Lawrence cherry, which is so healthy for you and full of antioxidants and is a little bit puckering, but has you kind of craving it and going back for more. And so when you go back and you have a, a sugar added Mount Lawrence cherry, it's cloyingly sweet. You can't right. handle it. So right. 
What I am excited by is that there's a whole generation of younger snackers who have grown up putting sriracha hot sauce on everything, right? And have, you know, their taste buds are being conditioned to less sugar, more bold flavors. And, you know, orange rind is exactly what they're looking for. They just don't know it yet. And so I think we're in the right path of, of development there. To- totally agreed. And, you know, research, you know, points to that both on a little, I'm going to call it sour, but also savory. Um, but a lot of these younger kids that are now in 20s and 30s were also eating sour pops and stuff as kids yeah. instead of Hershey bars. So yeah. they've become accustomed. That doesn't put them off. And yes, the, you know, the, the, the heat that we put into a lot of dishes and those levels that children experience today Yep. You and I didn't have as kids. I mean, you're right. It was pretty bland in that that area. So yeah, I think that all is a good portent for you know using these kind of products and being open to trying, you know, um, trying them at least, and then seeing what that different, you know, I mean, look looking at the kiwis, Matt, yes. right? Okay, so you look at the kiwis and you go, oh, okay, mm, I got to try, and it's like, wow, this is great, <laughs> so, you yeah. know. What I love about the, I'm glad you said the Kiwis because again, there's a lot of the category is already high, naturally high sugar fruits, right? Mango is is very high in in sugar. They're delicious for a reason. Um, Apples, even apples and apples chips, you know, high in sugar, Um, uh, you know, apricots and cherries and raisins and fruits, et cetera. Some of the fruits that we use already start from a lower sugar profile, which is great. So kiwis are tart and tangy. And when you dry them, it kind of becomes like a healthy version of a Sour Patch Kid. And we had one, you know, a friend of ours kid described it that way. And I just thought, man, I'm going to borrow that because that description of our product was like, we're not trying to be candy. We are showing what you can do with you know, a uh, more convenient version of kiwi that you can take with you and have 30 kiwis equivalent dried in a couple bags and take with you that can replicate or hit the craving you're looking for from a Sour Patch Kid in a natural way. Um, certainly without synthetic, you know, components to make it candy. And I love that. It's orange, same thing, much lower in sugar naturally to start than apple and, you know, mango. Um as, as long as we're, we're onto it, by the way, do we want to spend a little time on some new product stuff? Yeah, I'd love to. Just, you know, given when we're having this conversation and, and yeah. by the time it launches, it, you know, we might be teasing out a very exciting line extension uh, into the world of thin cut crispy fruit chips. Um, so it's been under, you know, top secret for, for the past six months. We worked really hard on the innovation behind this and the R&D during the pandemic. And what we're really excited about is taking a dried fruit snack, which, you know, is a slow snack, right? It's, it's right. in a resealable pouch. You can have some now. It fills you up and you put it, put it away and you have some in your office, you know, the next day. We want to take this into less of a specialty realm and much more of a, a fast snack, huge adjacent category of chips and really flip the script of what a uh, what a fruit snack can be. So it will have right. the craveable auditory crunch that you crave from a salty snack with all the benefits of the fruit. And to think, say, orange chips are coming that 
most functional attributes in the salty snack world are around protein, maybe a little bit of fiber, but certainly not vitamin C. So to have right. an immunity chip effectively that crunches like a potato chip, but is orange and could lend itself to light, clean seasoning, um, but be full of vitamin C, we're really excited about that. That, and that's awesome. And in in again, the the transparency, um, folks. Matt actually sent me some pre production samples uh, to where I am in love with the orange chips. Yes. And we'll tell me more about that. But but um, you know, stunning, absolutely great. So can't wait for those to you know. Um, timing wise, is that something in the spring, kind of later spring, yes. summer? Okay. Yeah, All right. Yep. Yeah. So uh, that's gonna be fun. Now the question is, when you go to the buyer. Which buyer are you going to? Yeah, we, um, you're right. Look, I, I, thankfully, I feel like lines are already blurring and that some of the Chinese walls between categories of the store are breaking down a little bit. Um, there still is a lot of old school friction, don't get me wrong, between a produce buyer and a, and a sure. center aisle snacks buyer. But I am seeing you know, more and more stores that are, obviously waking up to health and wellness and natural sets, starting to devote entire, you know, end caps to functional foods and functional snacks. And I think we will have an easier time of it explaining that, you know, our dried fruit that's chewy and has been in the market for a couple of years and is shaking up the sleepy category that can live in dried fruit next to bulk nuts and, and take share from bulk, which has obviously been kind of a closed off section of the story. Uh, but our fruit chips, rind chips, which are crispy, crunchy, craveable in a different way, um, would be complementary and not cannibalistic, and that those can live around the corner uh, and be merchandised next to salty snacks. And it's going to be on us to persuade the buyer and show through velocity, but we're up for that challenge. We purposely designed the packaging for this product so that it would scream chips and not scream dried fruit. Right. Yeah, because that's a, you know, one of the issues that I suppose we also don't have with Amazon is we don't have those walls up between, you know, departments. And I've been in a couple of winning, but more losing battles on that of going in with with um, large CPG companies with tons of consumer data, tons of Nielsen, some of them even the company's own checkout card, loyalty card data. To yeah. say you realize that when people buy this, they buy this and this. And why wouldn't you at least, if if not a uh, a, a dual location strategy? I'm not saying you got to take it out of your department. That's right. I'm saying at least put it over here to see what happens. You know, yes. and 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 in some cases, even in one particular case with um with Ready Pack and and Fresh Express, the company's paid to make the change. So in other words paid the stores to set them the way they wanted set, measured it, increased the profitability, and the store senior management said, no, we can't do that because produce doesn't get that ring. And therefore, you're not taking up that space. And it's like, seriously? Yeah. Okay. I, <laughs> I hope and I'm optimistic that over time, the numbers will speak for themselves. Yes. And you know, I've been in a lot of forward-thinking grocers where the perimeter is now full of immunity shots and snacks and refrigerated bars and, you know, the kombucha phenomenon. And if a fruit snack doesn't work there, 
where fresh fruit is being sold and merchandised, you know, I don't know what will, but the more, you know, pretzel crisps and, and harvest snaps and pistachios that you're seeing there, I think it, it helps make the case for the emerging crop of brands like, like ours a little bit easier. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're, we're still involved in that change in that process. That's part of what brands bring to retailers. I mean, that's part of what we're supposed to, supposed to do. Um, so, uh, Matt, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was um, we try to get this from our guests, and that is to ask them to kind of highlight through the building of the brand or their careers or whatever, a monumental challenge that you had and how you addressed and overcame, hopefully overcame that challenge. Can you pick one for us? Yeah, I'd say I'd harken back to something we talked about earlier in the in the episode, which was just the daunting nature of starting anything. Um, and let alone, you know, a, a business is you can't, you know, it's so easy, I think, to get caught up in what makes what we think of as a finished business, which is, oh, they have, you know, a product I can touch and feel and they have a fan base and they have great content and innovation. And that is the end result, but that is not the process. And I think so many entrepreneurs get caught up at the very beginning and get frankly paralyzed by trying to figure out where do I even start? And therefore it becomes so much easier to not start. And what I think is important if, you know, as a challenge for us, that was just getting this business off the ground and getting the proverbial flywheel going. And once we did and put ourselves out there and pushed ourselves to be uncomfortable, great things have started to happen. And we've done it with, you know, what we think is a partnership approach to everybody that we meet. And um, I think the monumental challenge that we have faced and overcome was just getting started, commercializing this, breaking it down into small chunks and making weekly progress toward us, you know, a small goal first and then build right as new doors open. And um you know, we're still doing that. Every day we are doing that and, and justifying why we need to exist and why we are better than another snack you might be putting in your cart. And that's a daily challenge, but getting off the ground is the toughest. And, um, you know, I, unfortunately, that's where so many entrepreneurs get stuck and they go from being having just ideas to really being an entrepreneur. And it's the zero to one. Once they get to one, they're an entrepreneur. Right. Yeah, you 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 make it, and you know you ha- you actually get started. You actually sell something to somebody. Exactly. Then it's okay. I've got a bag, or I've got a box, or a jar. Now I got a UPC code. Yes. Oh my god, I got to move forward and get this. You know, get this done. Yes, it's a great uh, great business. Well, hey Matt, look, I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today, uh, and appreciate the the great great fruit snacks and letting me try the new products and stuff. It's great. We're gonna we're gonna pull for that and hope it works because. We want more people eating fruit, right? We'll take our share. You take your share. We're all good, right? Exactly. Thank you, Steve. It's It's been an absolute pleasure being on your show. Love the content you produce and uh, yeah, love what you do for entrepreneurs in this industry. Th- thank you, sir. I really appreciate it. And by the way, folks, it's rindsnacks.com. You can get more information. Thanks to Matt. Thanks to all the rest of you for being with us here on the Next Level Brands podcast. Our podcast brought to you today by Kitchen to Shelf, the educational arm of Next Level Brands providers of online and in-person courses, workshops, and webinars for CPG entrepreneurs at any stage of growth. If you'd like to know more about selling in retail, 
e-commerce, distributors, how to properly price your product, check out the free webinar archive at kitchentoshelf.com. That's kitchen, the number two shelf.com, what you need to know to grow. This is Steve Clear, and we'll see you all next time. Thanks for listening to the Next Level Brands podcast with G. Stephen Clear. Learn more at next with two X's, levelbrands.com. While you're there, be sure to sign up for the Next Level Brands email list or subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode.